topic this evening is out of Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to focus specifically on the prophecies, prophetic prophecies, timeline prophecies, not only in the book of Daniel, but also in Revelation. And so if I calculate it right, I think I got every single time prophecy in the Bible, as well as some other prophecies uh, in this sermon here, going to be compacted, just filling it all in here, the timeline, to show us how close we are to the 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 to the Lord's coming. Uh, we're going to see on this time prophecy here, we're going to see where we are and when the time of the end is. Exactly when the time of the end is. All right, so let's start with, uh, look at some of the verses here out of starting Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel, shut up the book. Go your way. There's going to be a time where it's going to be opened, and many will run to and fro at that time. And in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, it says, I saw an angel, and he had a little book open in his hand. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but in my stomach it became bitter. I believe that this little book that this angel has open in his hand in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, is symbolic of the book of Daniel being opened up at this point in, Dan in Revelation chapter 10, which comes right after Revelation chapter 9, obviously. And we're going to be looking at some verses in Revelation chapter 9 that take us right up to Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And so right there, I believe, is when the book is opened up, when Daniel begins to be opened up and understood, and people started running to and fro around the world, sharing the prophecies that we've look been looking at out of the book of Daniel. At that same time, we had transportation opening up in massive ways that we didn't have before, with trains and planes and cars coming on the scene, which helped us to be able to run to and fro and begin to take the gospel around the world in ways that we weren't able to or, or easier than we were able to before. And now with the internet, it's made it also easier. Of course, a lot of bad stuff has come in through the internet and through mass transportation, but it's given us the ability, if we would take hold of it, to take the gospel around the world. As it says here, to run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And I don't think the knowledge there is just the ability to do trigonometry or something like that, or to be able to have uh, you know, iPhones and how to figure out uh, technology, but knowledge of the Word of God, knowledge of the book of Daniel, and especially in relation with the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to cover these time prophecies. Now, we looked in Daniel chapter 12 last week at an overview, and we saw three time prophecies mentioned there, and they were from Verse 7, and it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And then in verse 11, from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So three specific time prophecies. So we're going to look at these as well as other time prophecies in the books of Daniel and Revelation. So that we can see where we are, as the verse before, verse 4 said, the time of the end. Now the time of the end is different than the end of time. Okay, so we're going to see where the time of the end is, which will help us to be able to gauge when the end of time is. So to understand these time prophecies, we need to understand how to understand time prophecies. And one of the keys that we have in the Bible goes back to the story when we were in the wilderness and we came to the, came to the Jordan River 
And Moses sent over 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go and search out the land. And they searched out the land for 40 days. And then they came back with grapes and stories. And they began to tell the stories. And 10 of the spies said that the that there's giants in the land and we better not go and try and conquer it. Let's just stay on this side. It's dangerous over there. And they scared the people. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, yes, there's giants in the land, but there's great things in that land. And God has promised us the land and God is able to overcome all the giants. We don't have to fear anything. So let us go and take the land. The people believed, the majority of the people believed the 10 spies over the two and Thus, we did not go over, and then God gave a judgment based on that. And what he said was, your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years, according to the number of days which you searched out the land, even 40 days. Each day for a year, you will bear your iniquities, even 40 years. So you wandered for 40 days, you searched out the land for 40 days, thus you're going to wander for 40 years. And in Ezekiel, it's a very similar thing. God has him lay on his side, I think also for 40 days, symbolic of a 40-year period of time. So we have this biblical principle in looking at time prophecies that when it says a day, it's really referring to a year. Okay, that's again in prophecy, in Bible prophecy, Daniel and Revelation. So let's apply that to some of these time prophecies that we've seen. Now, we've already done this in the past. We already did this in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. And if you missed that, go to... ShalomAdventure.com, and if it's not up there anymore, if it's in the archives already, then just type in the search area, just type in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, and it'll show up there for you. And so we looked at the time prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that talked about the Messiah's coming from the time that Jerusalem was restored, and we looked historically when that was out of the book of Nehemiah, 457 BCE, and it took us right to Yeshua's immersion, and then three and a half years later, it took us right to when the Messiah was cut off for us, and so Yeshua witnessed and ministered and confirmed the covenant with the people for three and a half years in person with his disciples in Jerusalem and in Israel. And then after his death and resurrection, he continued to confirm the covenant with the people in Jerusalem and in Israel through the disciples and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for another three and a half years, taking us to the end of that 490-year time prophecy when, when Paul becomes or Saul becomes Paul. Saul gives his heart to the Lord and has a transformational experience. And he then begins to take the gospel to the world. And so that fits that time prophecy exactly. And then we saw also with that time prophecy, the same starting date, taking us all the way. So that was the, the beginning with the ultimate Passover taking place. Yeshua having his last Passover prophesied in his death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the ultimate Shavuot. And then taking us all the way to the ultimate Yom Kippur. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And again, we got into that in more detail in that, uh, pro in that uh, sermon on Daniel chapter 8 and 9. And again, you can see more of that there. Okay, so then, so now let's look at this Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. For a time, times, and a half a time. Now it mentions this time prophecy six different times in the Bible. There in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. But also in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 was given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 12, tr trampled the holy city for 42 months. And in Revelation 11, 3, they will prophesy 1,260 days. And in Revelation 12, verse 6, nourished for a time, times and half a time. And in Revelation 13, 5, given authority for 42 months. 
Now, we looked at this prophecy quite a bit when we did Daniel chapter 7. And again, you can do the shalomadventure.com and do the search there for Daniel chapter 7, and you'll see the sermon there. And you'll see where we covered that in detail uh, with, uh, with when it was mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. But we're reviewing here again. So there's time, times, and a half a time. A time refers to a year. Right? Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven years. Went crazy for seven years, seven times, and was seven years. So a time is, a time is one year. So times is two years. So we've got one year plus two years, that's three years, and a half a time. And a half a time is a half a year. So three and a half years. Right? So it mentions it that way three different times. So three and a half years, and then it's how many months are in three and a half years? 42. And so there's two different times where it mentions by months and says 42 months. How many days are in three and a half years, or how many days are in 42 biblical months? 1,260 days. So all six of these time prophecies are talking about the same specific event. Thus, obviously, it's a very important, significant event in Bible prophecy. And again, we got into more details with that, but in review, we'll look at that again, what took place. It's talking about the, the, uh, the beast power, specifically in Revelation 13 and Revelation uh, Daniel 7, the beast power, and that it would continue its power and continue its influence for this 1,260 days, or three and a half years, prophetic years, or 42 prophetic months. So how long is that? Numbers again, 1433, each day for a year, and Ezekiel 4.6, I have given you a day for a year, thus 1,260 days is symbolic of 1,260 years, right? Okay, so this power reign, this, this, this beast power reign, this, this, as Revelation 7, uh, Daniel 7 talks about this beast with 10 horns, and, uh, and, and, and has... Of those ten horns, three horns get plucked up, and then a little horn comes up out of that power, and then this little horn power will continue its sway for 1,260 days, symbolic of 1,260 years. And it starts when those three horns get knocked out. Now that beast power that reigns, we saw that in Daniel chapter 2, and then Daniel chapter 7, and again, the sermons are there for that to see all the details on that is the Roman Empire power, right? So Rome was ruling, and it divided up, it, it, it collapsed, it fell, and it divided into ten nations. That's the ten horns on the beast. Then three of those nations fall away and are replaced with another little horn that comes up. And so it's the timing of that little horn coming up and those three other nations falling away that it starts the time period. Well, when did that happen? Historically, in 538 AD, the Ostrogoths, which was one of those three horns, one of those three kingdoms, the last of the Aryan kingdoms to oppose the Roman church were overthrown in the year 538 AD. So those three nations that got plucked out were again Aryan nations and they were opposing the Roman Catholic church and they became annihilated. They get knocked out. And we'll discuss how that happened a little bit more. And that began the reign. And at that same time, Emperor Justinian appointed the Pope the bishop over Rome and gave him full control over Rome, the city of Rome. The Roman Empire's capital used to be in Rome. Constantine, years before this, moved it to Constantinople. 
thus leaving a void there, which then gets filled by the papacy. And then the emperor, in 538 AD, appoints him and gives, this, gives him this authority and power over Rome. Plus, there's no more nations opposing it. Thus it then enters into its power form, and for 1,260 years, exactly 1,260 years later, in 1798, a very significant event takes place. Napoleon's general, Berthier, broke the Roman church's political power in the year 1798. This general comes into the Vatican, takes the Pope captive, he gets put in prison, he languishes in prison, eventually dies in prison, and the Vatican's power gets diminished tremendously. And we'll look at that again in a little bit. So exactly to the time period when it enters into its power, given its power, to where its power is taken away was exactly 1,260 years. It's during those years where the Bible is outlawed, all heretics, or what they considered heretics, are persecuted, put on the rack, put in dungeons, killed, um, both Jews and, 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 and Gentiles, anyone who did not go along with the church's protocol was persecuted through that time. So that gives us our time prophecy here in the middle. So now we see we got this prophecy here in the beginning, going over to here, and those ones with the Messiah, ultimate Passover, to the ultimate Yom Kippur, and then in the middle here we have this beast power, and don't seem to be connected at all. But these three prophecies that we just started to look at in Daniel chapter 12 are going to connect everything together. Because all of Daniel and all of Revelation are connected together. They're not just separate chapters, they're not just separate time periods that apply here, apply there, apply to this person and this person, or this nation. This. No, they all have a purpose, they all fit together. Everything is like a, like a, um, a cloth sewn together, or a painting that all comes together, or a puzzle that all the pieces come together. Not just all separate stuff. And all applying to the same powers over and over again. Okay, so back to Daniel chapter 11. And it mentioned that we did the 1,260. And so now it mentions a 1,290 days. How many days is 1,290 more than 1,260? 30 years more, right? So 30 years, so 30 years are added now to this time prophecy. And then the 1,335 is 45 more days or years than the second one. Okay, so let's take a look at where it fits in. Clovis was a king, he was a general, and he became king, and he fought many uh, victorious battles. He becomes a Catholic, he, he baptized, and again, there's, so there's paintings, there's uh, um, stone figures of this event, of this king becoming baptized. Now, the Encyclopedia Britannica refers to this. It says, he was the founder of France, which we're going to see is interesting and significant here in a minute. His baptism is one of the forma formative dates for Catholics. He was the first major Catholic king and Pope John Paul II celebrated a mass in honor of the 15th centurion of his baptism. In 508, Clovis received the consulship 
of the Eastern Empire, or uh, from the Eastern Emperor Austerius. So 508, how many years is 508 before 538? 30 years. Very significant event. Actually, it's interesting, the Cyclopedia Britannica says it's a formative date. And that's what we've been looking for on our timeline, is dates, formative dates, important dates, and so important that 1,500 years later, the Pope is still recognizing it with a special mass for it. So we put that in the time prophecy, and we go 1,290 years, and it takes us to the same ending date. Now what's interesting is, it's a French king, the first French king, that first king that comes uh, and joins the Catholic Church. Now the Catholic Church who does all these things, we talked about these crusades and wars and persecutions. Now the Vatican is only a few acres, right? That whole nation, and it's a nation, that whole nation is only a few acres. So where do they store their mass army that's gone on all these crusades, doesn't there, I forget how many, uh, nine or so crusades, goes on all these crusades and all these persecuting powers and taking on nations. Where do they store their army? They use other people's armies, exactly. And so they use the French army. That's why Clovis was so crucial in helping take out those other three powers. So that by that time, those three nations, those three horns in, in, that, in that beast get knocked out in part because of Clovis's work. And so France then helps the stage for 538 for the papacy to come into its ascension. So it's interesting. So a French king sets it up, and then it's a French general who takes it down. So I thought that was kind of interesting on both sides there. Okay, but we're still not connected yet. But we have that 1,335-year prophecy. And if we stay with that same 508, Clovis's date, and we go exactly 1,335, it takes us to our end time, 1843, 1844, when those events were taking place and revivals were taking place here in the United States and around the world of proclaiming the Lord's coming and preparing for the heavenly sanctuary to, to, uh, to be cleansed. Now we're going to see how that fits it even more here, but now, right now, for that, it connects all the time prophecies that we've looked at thus far. Everything comes together, everything links together, but there's still more. Islam is also in Bible prophecy, and we looked at where Islam is in Bible prophecy a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 11, and plays a huge role in Daniel chapter 11, but it's also in Revelation in Revelation chapter 9. It's Revelation chapter 10 where the little book is opened. And so Revelation chapter 9 tells us about the fifth angel sounded, right? There's a seven trumpets. There's the fifth trumpet sounding, fifth shofar. So the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. That sounds a lot like Lucifer falling from heaven and landing on this earth into a bottomless pit. And that word bottomless pit in Greek is abysmos. And in the Greek translation of the Torah, 
where it talks about the earth in the beginning, the earth being without form and void. It's the same word. And so this void area, this abyss area, is where he's coming from. Now, so it's the, talks about, it sounds a lot like the fall of Lucifer to this earth. But again, I said it has to do with Islam, and we'll see that in the next several verses. But Islam is satanic. We didn't realize that, we didn't know that. I know a lot of that's not a very popular uh, statement, but it's true. And we'll see how they fit together. So next verse, verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke. And so, and like pictured here, the Arabian soldiers, the Arabian knights coming out of the, out of the desert, out of the pit, out of out of the, yeah, the desert areas, just dusting up the smoke and smoke rising up out of the, as the masses of horses, the Arabian horses coming up and just sending up the smoke and even darkening the sun. Out of the smoke, locusts came up upon the earth and they were given power as scorpions of the earth have power. So it's like serpents, I mean like locusts, and like scorpions. So obviously this is Revelation, so there's a lot of symbolism going on here. But it mentions these locusts. Now here's a map, the top map is the extent of the Arabian locust. The bottom, this red, is the extent of early Islam. And they parallel very, very closely. Now we're kind of familiar with this bottom map because we've looked at it several times with Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 11, with the king of the north, apostate Christianity, and the king of the south, Islam. And that matches up again, as we've seen. And Israel, Jerusalem, in the middle of the two, where the two battled it out for many, many years. Verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God in their forehead. Now that's kind of interesting. What happens to locusts that don't eat any grass, or any green thing, or any tree? They die, right? Yes, yeah, so obviously, again, it's symbolic. It's not talking about locusts here. It's not talking about a locust plague taking place. And they will, and they, and, and they, but um, they command not to harm them, but only those, to harm only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's kind of an interesting command here, right? For these locusts, not to eat grass, not to eat trees, not to eat any green thing, and not to hurt any that have the seal of God in it. Now in the book by Edward Gibbon, very, very uh, important book, a very well-known book, very well accepted book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He was a historian, and he's talking about the, how Rome declined, the Roman Empire declined, it didn't, wasn't taken over like, like uh, Medo-Persia taking over Babylon, and like Greece taking over Medo-Persia, and Rome taking over Greece. It declined and it fell apart into those ten nations we talked about. So he describes that in this book, and what he says in that book is Muhammad's successor, Abu Bakr, said, let not your victory be stained with the blood of women or children. Destroy no palm trees, nor burn any fields, 
nor cut down any fruit trees. Does that sound like what we just read out of Revelation? You will find some religious persons who live retired in monasteries and propose to themselves to serve God that way, let them alone and neither kill them nor destroy their monasteries. Just like we read in Revelation. Harm not the grass, the trees, or the fields, nor those who have the seal of God in them. Back to Revelation chapter 9, verse 7. The shape of the locust were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions. And we'll look at some more pictures, but gold turbans and gold crowns was very popular for the, the Arab fighters, like horses riding on horses, and their faces were like the faces of men. What might distinguish the faces of men? Beard, mustache, right. And hair like women could be that turban, flowing in the room that God, John's seeing and he's trying to describe as he writes it down. And their teeth were like lions. Now, I don't know exactly what uh, God had in mind with that, but, but again, I, I kind of picture in my mind, again, them riding on their horses, their turban flowing behind them, and they got a knife in their teeth, right? And like lions, right? Like sharp teeth in their mouths. Verse 9. They had breastplates like iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. So again, there's this battle taking place, these wars taking place, and sound, many, many fighters on horses running into battle like the sounds of wings. They were not allowed to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Not able to take them over, not able to conquer, but to torment for five months. Our next time prophecy. Five months. How long is five months? How many days in five biblical months? 150, right? So we have five months, 30 days in a month, 150 days, right? And so if it's 150 days, symbolically, how many years? 150 years, right? A day for every year in Bible prophecy, 150 days equals 150 years. So they're going to torment the Christians to their north. The king of the south is going to torment the king of the north for 150 years. On July 22nd, in 1299, the Ottoman first invaded Nicomedia and continued to battle the Byzantines. The Byzantines were Christians. Byzantines until July 27th, 1449, when the last Byzantine emperor only took the crown with Turkish permission. That's 150 years. So for 150 years, they torment them, never gain the victory over them. But then finally they gain the victory, not a total defeat of the Byzantines, but the Byzantines surrender and they are not able to put in their next crown without the Turkish permission. If you need to ask the other guys for permission, who's really in control? The other guy, right? And so for 150 years, they're tormenting but never conquering until the 150 years are up. And so we have our date, July 27th, 1299. We'll put that in our prophecy. We go 150 years. So the Ottoman begins to invade, and then Ottoman finally starts to be able to rule 150 years later. And so all that description coming up out of the bottomless pit and locusts, right, horses and all like that, that's all. We can see some of the analogies. Some people might say it's helicopters or other kind of things, but it's the date that cements it. And that's only one date. There's another one coming. 
that's going to cement it even more. Revelation 9, verse 12, one more was passed, the sixth angel sounded, and release of the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So this is the sixth trumpet, the sixth angel sounding the shofar. There are seven shofars, there's seven trumpets, just like there's seven seals. And we're going to look at the seals again in a little bit. And they parallel, just like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and 9. And then Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are not separate things. They all parallel. They overlap. They all say the same thing. Same thing with the seven congregations in Revelation. And then the seven trumpets. And then the seven seals. Or actually, I think the seals come first. The seven congregations, the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets. It's not seven different things. It's not three different... Pro it's all the same overlapping on each other. And so, if there's seven, and we're up to six, we're almost towards the end. And then the sixth one sounds, and then this is Revelation 9, and then Revelation 10, the book is opened. Revelation 9, okay, so the sixth angel sounded, coming up out of the great river Euphrates. Revelation 9, 17, those who sat on horses had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And again, I don't know exactly what God was trying to show John there, but maybe thinking about, again, a soldier riding on an Arabian horse, and he's riding into battle, knife in his mouth, a rifle on his side, and he's shooting the rifle, and what does it look like is coming out of the horse's mouth? Fire and smoke and brimstone. And the colors? This is a parade of the Ottoman, celebrating the Ottomans. It said, fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Here's some more. Very easy to find these. I found so many, I could have put a hundred more on there. This is their soldiers. This is their soldiers. This is what they wore. Now, I'll ask you, does that look like good camouflage to you? <laughs> is that how they make soldiers' uniforms now? Is that good for desert fighting? Bright red, bright blue, bright yellow. Here, I'm over here. <laughs> for desert or for forest? No, that's not how they make camouflage. But this was their uniforms. How many other, I mean, other than maybe a football team or something like that, or I don't know, who would use those colors? I can't even think of a, a high school football team that would choose those colors. Very, it's very, very descriptive. That God said, hundreds of years in advance that their uniforms, their breastplates were going to be fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. How could you come up with those colors and, and, and pin it to that? As well as then the time prophecy and the other descriptions coming up out of the pit and coming up at the time period that they come up. Where went it done? Verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for an hour, a day, and a month, and a year were released to kill a third of mankind. We have another time prophecy. A very specific time period. An hour, a day, a month, and a year. Well, how long is that? Okay, as a year. How long is a year? Biblical year? 360, so 360 days equals 360 years. A month, how long is a biblical month? 
30, so we had 30, 30 days equaling 30 years. A day, a day is a year, right? And then a hour. So how long is an hour? How many hours are in a day? 24, so you take a year, you divide it by 24, right? How long is that? How many weeks is? Two weeks. How many days in two weeks? Or 14, but then, you know, again, it's exact, or half a month, right? 15, right? So, and a day, 24th of a year is 15 days. That's very specific. And so the total, 390 years and 15 days. Now, there's a man named Josiah Litch who was studying. Again, the book was opened, and the prophecies of Daniel began to be studied. And he began studying it and began sharing it and began telling other people what he was studying. And he applied that 150 years, just as we looked at. I didn't make this stuff up. Right? So he applied that, and he said, this applies to, to the Ottoman Empire, 150 years. It fits perfectly. And he plugs it in there, and then he looks at this next prophecy. And he says, if this one then picks up where that last one ended, they tormented for 150 years, and now they're able to kill for 391 years, and now they're in control for 391 years and 15 days, and he calculated it out, and he said, the Ottoman Empire is going to fall on such and such a date, before it happened. It's real easy for us to do it after the fact, he did it before it happened down to the specific day. And he wrote it, and he published it, and sent it out. And he was ridiculed, because the Ottoman Empire was powerful. It was like saying the United States is going to totally fall, or fall uh, three months from now. Or predicting the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. But he did, he predicted it, and so he applied it. So the Ottoman invaded the Byzantine Empire in July 27th, 1299, plus the 150 years that they were tormenting till July 27th, 1449, when the last Byzantine Emperor took the throne only with the Turkish permission. And then we add on the 391 years and 15 days to the downfall of the Ottoman Empire as it submitted to the Europe's help, submitted to Europe's help in its war against Egypt on August 11th, 1899. 40. Now, they didn't totally collapse on that day, but if they're submitting to Europe's help in their war, then who's now really the ruler? Europe, right? And so they had to submit. They're fighting against Egypt. They're not winning. We need your help. Come and help us. And so they submit on exactly the day that Josiah Litch predicted it. He received thousands of letters after that of people acknowledging his accuracy and giving their hearts to the Lord that they were doubting, they were skeptical, they didn't believe him, they mocked him, they ridiculed him, and now they surrendered and saw biblical prophecy accurate. That's a long prophecy. So two prophecies adding together, they fit together, and where do they come out? In 1840, setting the stage for this time period things going on. Now we're going to see everything's going to get filled in here. All these blanks are going to be filled by the time we're done. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was an earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by the mighty wind. So this is not a time prophecy, but it's a specific prophecy in Revelation chapter 6 regarding which seal? 
the sixth seal, which parallels which trumpet? The sixth trumpet. Okay, so he's describing events that are going to be taking place at around the same time or within that same time period. And it mentions in order a great earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, and the stars of heaven falling. Okay, so let's look at some prophecies for this or some fulfillments of these things in order in that time period. Lisbon earthquake, a 8.5 to a 9.0 earthquake on November 1st, 1755. We're going to look at a video of what that would have looked like. Put out by the uh, National Oceanic uh, Atmospheric Organization or Association. Okay, so there's Lisbon. Boom, the earthquake hits, the tsunami begins, affects all of Spain, northern Africa, continuing across the Atlantic. In four hours, it's hitting England. In six hours, it's hitting Newfoundland. It's hitting the Caribbean with 13-foot surges, hitting the United States within 10 hours, hitting Florida, starts moving into the Mediterranean Sea, down the coast of Africa, felt on almost every continent, and continues for 24 hours. They continue this demonstration. It starts moving into the Gulf. A huge, huge earthquake. Sending all the way across the Atlantic, and again affecting Europe and Africa, and even South America affected by it. And as it's described, um, one of the most destructive and deadly earthquakes in history, killing well over 100,000 people, the first to be studied scientifically, the quake signaled the birth of, the modern, of modern seismology. Seismology. So very significant. So it's one of the largest. It's the first, and it begins the birth. Of, of this study. So that's pretty significant, right? That's a pretty significant event, and it's described a great earthquake. So we'll stick that in the timeline. And this begins the time of the end. Now again, the time of the end is not the end of time. It's like what we say, uh, it's the beginning of the end. Okay, so that's just the beginning of the end. It's not the end, but it starts the clock going towards the end. And we're going to look at some more time prophecies that are going to take us from this time all the way to our day. And each one is only going to be from four years apart to a maximum of like 50 years apart, under 50 years apart. So pretty quick in, in history of Earth's history. Okay, so okay, then we have just, four, uh, just 20 years later, we have the United States becoming a nation and the Declaration of Independence. A very, very significant event in Bible prophecy. We're not going to have time to go into the prophecy today, but in Revelation, when we get into Revelation, we're going to see there's two chapters, two big portions of two chapters that talk about the United States in Bible prophecy. And so that's a very significant event. So just a few years after the earthquake. Revelation, back to Revelation chapter 6, we talked about the earthquake, and now the sun became black and the moon like blood. 
On the day of May 19, 1780, people in New England woke up to find a shadowy fog drifting over the morning sun. Early twilight had fallen within the few hours that passed, and when noon came, the skies were already as dark as midnight. Even the animals got confused by the unexpected darkness. The night birds sang while chickens in the area retired to their roosts. People had to light candles so they could see what was around them. Since then, it's taken scientists a few centuries to eventually come up with the most probable cause of this out-of-the-world darkness. However, during that time, many Americans were bewildered by the disappearance of sunlight, fearing that the biblical end of days was already at hand. That unusual day of confusion and awe has since been commemorated as the Dark Day of 1780. Several days before the eventual dark day of May 19, 1780, people noticed some unusual activities happening in the skies that loomed over New England. At the time, the region had only just recovered from one of the coldest winters ever, and though the still and breezy air in the town warmed up, it was also very dense. During the hours of dusk and dawn, the sun had a reddish hue while the moon glowed pink in the evening. Even General George Washington, who was based with some members of his Continental Army in the neighboring New Jersey, mentioned in his diary entry that day that there were heavy and uncommon kinds of clouds, and that it was both dark as well as bright with a reddish kind of light intermixed with them. Despite these unusual signs that appeared the day before, May 19th began as a typical gloomy morning. The skies were both calm and gloomy, while light rain drizzled over some areas. People across New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut rose from their beds and headed out to their farms and towns. It wasn't until sometime between 8 and 9 in the morning that people started to notice something was not quite right with their surroundings. A bunch of reddish-orange tinted clouds rushed in from the west, blocking the rays of the early morning sun. And so, instead of glowing brighter, the skies had gotten dimmer, with a veil colored like apple cider descending over the visible heavens. The dark clouds continued to accumulate as the morning went on. By midday, the sun's disk was already obscured as a whole, and most, if not all of New England was shrouded by gloomy blackness. In order to work or eat lunch, many people were forced to do so under the glow of faint candlelight. Others could only stop and stare in amazement at what was unfolding all around them. Believing the sun had already set, cows wandered back home, while crickets and frogs started to chirp and croak. Even the flowers folded their petals as if night had already fallen. One famous scene during that day took place in the Governor's Council of Connecticut. Surprised by the unnatural darkness, a number of the politicians at the council urged the others to adjourn the meeting early. However, a councilman named Abraham Davenport, who was a militia colonel from Connecticut, was vehemently against it. He went down in history for saying the following words, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Moved by his words, the council agreed to proceed with the sessions for that day, working by candlelight. This action of Davenport went down in history as a very brave moment amidst great uncertainty and was later immortalized by writer John Greenleaf in his poem written in 1866. Aside from a few rays of sunlight slipping through the cloudy blackness, the dark shade almost completely covered the northeastern area for what remained of the day. Okay, so in 1780, there's this dark day taking place over all of New England, and where, when, when Europe began to close up to, to believers in the Bible and reading the Bible, where did God send believers? Where did believers go? They came to New England, right? The pilgrims came over and religious liberty began. And so first Jewish synagogue started in Rhode Island because of religious liberty. And so Jews and Protestants started coming to the United States because they could worship God freely, right? So the persecutions of Europe were swallowed up by the entrance of the United States. And so now believers are here in, 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 in greater numbers, the Bible being preached. The most popular books in people's homes 
was the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Very religious thrust. And so they have this dark day, so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. People trying to walk to the house across, couldn't even find it, even though they knew the street and knew the way. Um, the animals all upset by it and, and, and thinking it's nighttime in the middle of the day. And as it said, and then at night, the moon is pinkish and red. Just as the Bible said, dark day. It's kind of interesting because if it's a dark day and the sun is blotted out, then how'd the moon come out? The clouds opened up or whatever was causing that darkness opened up so they could see the moon that night. Now, if for like 200 years, they didn't know what caused it. They had no idea, even though people searched and tried to figure it out. And then some university found an area in Canada where there seemed to have been a forest fire. They found some trees that had been cut down, the rings indicating that there was some forest fire. And the guy was like, see, it wasn't Bible prophecy, it was just some forest fire. As if, well, because it was some natural thing, as if when the Bible predicted there was going to be an earthquake, well, that doesn't count because it really was an earthquake. You know? <laughs> so there was an earthquake. He said it was going to be an earthquake, and there was an earthquake. He said it was going to be a dark day, and it was a dark day. He didn't say it was going to be a fire or, or just miraculous or whatever. It doesn't matter. It was a dark day, and everyone recognized it as this is God's judgment. And again, the whole purpose of these things, all these time things and all these dates, are really irrelevant other than showing us and preparing us for the time we're living in. And if that stirred people up to get them ripe for the revival and for accepting the Lord and spreading the gospel, then that was the purpose of it. And it fulfilled that purpose. And so, just a few years, four years after the U.S. is founded, or the declaration is, is, is we have the dark day fitting in there. And then we go just to 19, 18 years after that, and we have the papal womb. So again, everything in quick succession. Then we, looking at the stars falling from heaven, the next of these three specific, in, or really four, because you've got the blood moon also, right? and so these four things in specific order, the stars falling from heaven. Perhaps the most famous meteor shower in history happened on November 13th, 1833 as thousands upon thousands of meteors soared into the atmosphere, lighting up the entire night sky. It was visible across the eastern United States and was such a spectacular sight that an eyewitness stated some really thought that the judgment day was at hand. The meteor storm had such an impact in the south that it sparked a historic song. Stars fell on Alabama. This meteor storm is caused by the Earth passing through the orbit of the comet Temple-Tuttle and is known as the Leonid meteor shower. It can be observed every year in November with a normal rate of a dozen or two visible meteors per hour. But on occasion, we're treated to hundreds or even thousands. Okay, so we have a meteor shower that this is a uh, woodcut of depicting what it looked like in Niagara Falls. So Niagara Falls, they had these things fall, these, it seemed like falling stars, right? And he mentioned all the way down to Alabama, right? So from Niagara Falls down to Alabama, all these people, it looked like the sky is falling. The heavens are falling, stars are falling. How many have ever seen a, a falling star, right? Outside, see a falling star. Could you imagine seeing hundreds of thousands of falling stars an hour and continuing all night long? There were hundreds of thousands of meteors per hour were seen. It was the first recorded meteor storm of modern times. So again, another first, 
and very dramatic and taking place over the United States where again, again, Bible believers and Jews and, 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 and Christians are studying the Bible and seeing these events unfolding and an awakening taking place. And again, very close in our timeline, just 30 something years from the papal wound taking place. And just seven years between the Ottoman Empire fall, which is just four years before the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And then we have the first Zionist conference taking place just a few years after that in 1897, which stirred up and helped to birth the modern nation of Israel. If more people would have listened to Theodor Herzl, we wouldn't have died in mass numbers as we did during the Holocaust. But it got it going, it got the whole ball rolling towards Israel's founding, and so we'll stick that in there. And in Revelation 13, verse 3, it says, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So we talked about that papal wound taking place. Well, how severe was that wound? Prior to that wound, during that 1,260 years of the papal supremacy ruling, kings bowing down, kings only getting into their position with the, with the Pope's permission. Again, mass persecutions taking place all throughout Europe. But then it gets this wound. Berthier sends his, uh, Napoleon sends his General Berthier, takes that Pope captive, and it receives this deadly wound. But not totally dead, but how dead? Let's look at some quotes. This is from Pilgrim's Progress. Again, a, the second most popular book in the United States, a very powerful book, a wonderful book written by John Bunyan. Everyone should read it, wonderful book. But he describes the Pope. I saw a cave where two giants, Pope and Pagan, dwelt by whose power men's bones, blood, and ashes lay there. I have heard that Pagan is dead, and the other, though he is alive, he is, by reason of age, has grown so crazy and stiff in his joints that he can do little more than sit in his cave, grinning at pilgrims as they go by, and biting his nails because he cannot come at them. So he pictures these two, the pilgrims walking on his journey towards heaven, and he passes this cave, and there's Pope and Pagan, who at that time, as far as in England, where John Bunyan was, they were, they were powerless. Well, no more. Pagan never really died. Pagan is now very big. And the papacy also is no longer sitting in a cave, biting its nails, and grinning as pilgrims as they go by. Another description in the United States when Pope Pius IX, in 1852, sent a block of marble to be included in the Washington Monument, mass protests were conducted. Two years later, irate Americans dragged it into the Potomac. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that these Protestants who, were, who hated the papacy so much that they didn't even want this block of marble. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying this is a historical event that took place. This is how it was in the United States not very long ago. 1852, that they were not received here and that this was the feeling and the papacy had no power, had no jurisdiction. And so they send this block of marble and there's these protests, mass protests. So the builders say, well, well we don't know what to do, let's just shove it aside. So they shove it aside, people forget about it, don't worry about it, just leave it there for a while. But they didn't forget about it. Two years later, they're still irate about it and they go and drag this piece of rock and throw it into the Potomac. 
That was the feelings of Protestants towards Catholicism at that time. But no more. No more. Today, accepted in Protestant circles and unions taking place and agreements being signed and around the world. Coming to the United States with a red carpet entrance and papal flags on the streets of Washington, D.C., called by President Bush, Holy Father, and brought into the White House. President Trump, on his first international trip, trip, stops at the Vatican. Atheistic countries, Russia, Putin, goes to the Vatican. Arab countries go to the Vatican. Jewish countries and presidents and prime ministers to the Vatican and to their nation. Back and forth, diplomatic, speaking at the UN. No more wounded. No more sitting in a cave with toothless grins. No more being pushed around and having their rocks thrown into the Potomac River. Again, I'm not saying that that was good or bad. I'm just, this is historic history. It had this deadly wound. But the deadly wound was healed. Well, when was the deadly wound healed? This is from the San Francisco Chronicle, titled Mussolini and Gaspari Sign Historic Roman Pact. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy in affixing the autographs to the memorable document, Healing the Wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Now, I don't know if the writer of the San Francisco Chronicle read the Bible. If he read Revelation, where it says that at the end of 1,260 years, it will receive a deadly wound. But that's the exact words that he used. The wound was healed. Healing the wound. And since 1929, again, it's risen in prominence and in power and in influence around the world. So, just a few years after the first Zionist conference, we have the wound being healed and the rising to a power again, full ascension worldwide influence again. And we have Israel's independence, May 14th, 1948. So, right towards the end there. And then, uh, just, so that's just 20 years or so after the wound being healed. And then we have Jerusalem being liberated about... 20 years after that. And so, and so we started with the rest restoration of Jerusalem. We come to the end of the timeline here and Jerusalem being restored. And we're already, so from the time of the end, again, every four to less than 50 years and Jerusalem, 1967. But we're not done, we saw. So we're going to now zoom in on just this time, this time of the end that we're living in. We're going to make the whole map fit there, okay? So we just pushed it over so we have more room because there's more that's taking place. The World Trade Center bombings, just 40 or so years after Jerusalem being liberated. And what did we read in Daniel chapter 11? The king of the south would push against the king of the north. And so thus the push began, and that's where we're at right now. This push is taking place. And we looked at that. Again, if you missed that, go to shalomadventure.com, type in Daniel chapter 11, 
and you'll see that final conflict one. We did three sermons out of Daniel chapter 11, but the final one, we get into this final push, but the other two sermons build up to that. This final push of the king of the south, again, Islam pushing against now worldwide Christianity, apostate Christianity, political Christianity, and this push is now taking place. That's where we're living in. And the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem, that's taking place right now in our midst. And that has stirred up the king of the south, even worse. And the king of the north made a comment about it too, which we looked at when we did Daniel chapter 11. He wasn't happy about it either. So the king of the south is not happy and the king of the north is not happy about that either. As the two powers battle it out for supremacy. And who's stuck in the middle? Jerusalem, Israel is in the midst of this battle. And not just physically, geographically, which is true, but also globally, all believers, Jewish and Christian who believe in the true God, are stuck in the midst of this battle. Right? It's not joining one side or the other. Right? Oh, oh, Islam is winning or, or Christianity is winning. It's, neither side is good. As Yeshua said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. We don't want to be on either one of those battling sides. We need to be on the Lord's side, praying for the people on both sides that they come to know the Lord. We are in the middle. We need to be in the middle. And in the middle is where Yeshua is. Between two thieves, being killed, being persecuted by, by the, sides on, the powers on each side of us. The balanced middle is the place to be. In the balanced middle, both sides hate you. <laughs> But that's where God is, in the midst, in our midst, in the middle. Then we have the king of the north, like a whirlwind, pushing back, and we looked at that. So they're pushing back. ISIS was decimated, but now it's trying to make some rise again. So this war is still going on, this battle is, and it's going to get heat up much more than we've seen. Countries are now, just this week, two more countries have recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. That's again significant, and again is stirring up both sides, and not neither side happy about it. Because the king of the north, as we read, in the, we're down to the last four verses of Daniel chapter eleven. That's it. That's all that's left. We're here at the end. This is it. And as the whole purpose of all these time prophecies and all these prophecies is to show us that we are at the very end. There's no more time prophecies. All the time prophecies are done. The time prophecies just got us to the beginning of the time of the end or the beginning of the end. And now we're here at the end, with all these prophecies being fulfilled and taking place. See, futurists say none of that has taken place yet, but this is historic understanding. All the Protestant, under, Protestant historic, historic, historically, Protestant reformers understood it basically this way. All taking place, Revelation and Daniel, fulfilled in our time. But there was a counter-reformation that throws it all in the future and says, none of that is taking place. All that's still going to happen later on. No. We don't have to wait for anything else to take place. There's very little to take place. We're going to look at what left to take place. But we're right here. We're at the very end. So what has to take place? Romans 11, verse 25. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that's what's left. When this gospel is preached in all the world, then the end shall come. And as it says here, 
When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then the blind, the partial blindness, right? Israel didn't have a full blindness, it only had a partial blindness. Continued to keep the law, continued to keep the Torah, continued to keep God's uh, clean and unclean, eating, continuing to follow God, but a partial blindness, which was brought on, brought on in part because of apostate Christianity, in big part because of apostate Christianity. But when that partial, when the gospel, full gospel, not just a half gospel, not just a third gospel, not just a, just a, a few books of the second part of the Bible, just the end of the Bible, denying two-thirds of the Bible, but the fullness of the Gentiles, the full gospel, Genesis to Revelation, including it all in there, grace and truth, justification and sanctification, faith and law, Blood and stone, the blood of Messiah and the Ten Commandments stone, all together in harmony, together kissing each other, not in opposition to each other. Not one group of people who just believe in the first part of the Bible, another group of people who believe in the second part of the Bible. But people who come together, believing the entire Bible together, with all of it applying to our lives. The fullness of the Gentiles come in. So full gospel and the full number going to all the world. And that's what's taking place right now. Gospel needs to go to all the world. And when the gospel goes to all the world and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it comes back to Israel. And we're seeing that now too. Large numbers of Jewish people accepting the Lord and larger numbers than ever before in history. Since, well, not since 3,000 were immersed in a day and 5,000 in a day and, and every day being people coming in, 25,000 and more. But since that time, since the early time, and we're going to see that early time revived again, and that's the day we're looking for. That's where we're in. That's what has to take place. And that's where God's using us to take the gospel to the world and to Israel and to the Jewish people, to Jew and Gentile. As in Romans, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to both Jew, to verse the Jew, and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. So that's all that's left to take place. For the full gospel to the world, that's taking place very soon, now, and needs to continue. Full sight come back to Israel very soon. And then the mark of the beast being enforced. That's it. That's it. And when the gospel goes to the world and comes back to Israel, and God says, okay, all my people are sealed. All my people have heard. Everyone has made a choice. And he can pull back and allow the beast to enforce its mark upon the world. God's not allowing it to be enforced yet. Because we're not ready yet. And we haven't gotten the world ready yet. But when we get ready, and are so committed to God that nothing can sway us. They can force us on the pain of death. Tell us we can't buy, we can't sell anything. Or it'll kill us. And we don't yield like a Daniel. You can kill me. You can throw me into a fire first. You can throw me into a lion's den. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to disappoint God. I'm going to serve God rather than man. And when we have that commitment in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives and in our souls. And we share it filled with the Holy Spirit who will seal us and will take the gospel to the world. 
Second outpouring, the latter rain power of the Holy Spirit come upon us, and we take the gospel to the world, we get serious about it, but we're lax. Oh, it's all this is going to be in the future, so what do we have to worry about it now? We don't. But when we see the day we're living in and everything's been fulfilled and God's just waiting on us, hopefully awaken us and stir us up to take the gospel to the world so we can go home. And then when everyone has made their choice, God seals us. Then he can let the beast do whatever he wants. And we won't yield. We won't surrender. No guile in our mouth, without blame, without blemish. As a bride prepared for the groom to come. And literally all hell can break loose and we won't yield. And then God testifies to the world like Job. That's what it's all about. So that he can testify to the world. Have you considered my bride? Have you considered my people? They don't yield under any condition. Take everything from them. It doesn't matter. They're not going to yield. They're committed to me. And all the universe can see that God had a people group who are committed to him and would not yield under any condition for any reason, for finances, for health, for wealth, for position. They will not yield. Willing to go to prison and to death or anything for the Lord. Rather not eat and wait for a raven to come and feed us if necessary than give than to surrender our walk with the Lord. The gospel will go to the world and he can pour out, the beast can pour out his fury and it won't matter. And all the world will receive the mark of the beast except God's people who are sealed with God's seal. And then the second coming of the Lord, the destruction of the wicked, the resurrection of the saints, and we meet the Lord in the air. Soon and very soon. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Messiah will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And as Daniel 2 ended, and Daniel 7 ended, and Daniel 8 and 9 ended, and Daniel 10, 11, and 12 ended, the beast roars, and God delivers his people. By raising the dead, sending his angels, coming in all of his glory on the clouds and taking us to meet the Lord in the air and destroying the wicked, burning this earth up and preparing it to make a new heavens and new earth. And then what comes after that? The very last of the time prophecies, the millennial, the millennium. But we don't have time for that tonight. <laughs> but that's all that's left. Soon and very soon he's coming. There's nothing more to take place other than for us to get ready and to take the gospel to the world. That's it. That's it. Stop looking to blood moons. Stop looking to dates. There's no more dates. There's no more time prophecies. There's no more things to see. We need to be in the word of God. We need to be sharing it with others. So as we pray tonight, prepare to pray tonight. Let us ask the Lord to get us ready. Because we've been on a fast-moving train since the time of the end began. Again, every four to less than 50 years, all these events have taken place. And we're right here at the edge of time. God wants to use us, each of us, coming together 
And so as we pray, if there's anything on our record, any sin that needs to be cleansed out of our heart and mind, we need our heavenly record books to be cleansed. Anything from the past, anything in the current, anything on our soul, anything on our record, anything in our hearts, any rebellion against God, any known, cherished sin, any area that we know we shouldn't be doing that we need to do, any, anything we know we need to do that we're not doing, let us confess it and accept the Messiah's sacrifice in our behalf. And let us be filled with God's Spirit to receive forgiveness and to receive the power and the unction to go and sin no more by God's grace, not continuing that sin anymore. And so if that applies to us, in a moment when we pray, surrender that sin or those sins to the Lord. There be nothing there. Not even one taint. Secondly, God wants to use us. It's a moment when we pray. Let's ask, the God, let's ask God to pour out his spirit upon us. And to prepare us to share with our little world here with those we come in contact with, and again, with the internet, we can be used around the world, literally, for God to use us, for God to pour out his spirit upon us and that latter rain power and seal us that we share with the world and that others come to him as well. So if either of those areas apply to you, you want to be used by the Lord, filled with his spirit, or if there's any area that needs to be cleansed, let us come to the Messiah Accept his forgiveness and his grace. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we're thankful, Lord, that you've revealed these things to us so that we could be prepared and that we can prepare others. Thank you that we can know the time is at hand. Lord, cleanse us and forgive us. Wash us clean of our comfortableness in this earth and our attachments to this earth. We want to surrender all to you. We want nothing holding us back, nothing holding us down. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment and reveal if there's any sin in our hearts and minds. Open up the books of heaven and cleanse our hearts through your sacrifice, mediating there for us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us victory over sin. Give us the words to speak and the passion to go forth. Open up doors of opportunity. Bring people to us and bring us to people that are open and receptive to hearing your truth and speak truth through us in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.